It's time for Herd Mentality, the weekly episode where you control the discussion today on Locked On Bills. You are Locked On Bills, your daily Buffalo Bills podcast, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. What's up, Bills Mafia? Joe Marino, author of Go Bills and Buffalo's Run, also the co-host of the Locked On NFL Scouting Podcast, and I'm your host of Locked On Bills. want to thank you for making Locked On Bills your first listen every day, and of course, a big welcome to our everydayers. You know who you are. Those of you who never miss a single episode, I appreciate y'all being here very, very much. I'd like to invite you to subscribe or follow for free on YouTube or wherever you listen to podcasts. We're part of the Locked On Podcast Network your team every day. This episode is brought to you by FanDuel Sportsbook, official sportsbook of the NFL. Make every moment more. Visit FanDuel.com slash locked on today to get started. Well, folks, you know the drill. It's herd mentality. You guys supply the questions and talking points, and I'll provide some feedback. And like I mentioned, I had a bunch that I needed to get to last time we did herd mentality towards the end of last week, and so I wanted to have a quick turnaround so I can get caught up, and so let's do that today. Some great talking points for us to get into. The first one comes from John. John says, it looks like from the national perspective that the Bills have lost their Super Bowl window and that the Jets are sudden favorites in the AFC East. With this change in national media attention, how much do they think the Bills' experience will play to their advantage over these new up-and-coming teams. All right, so as I've teased a number of times, very, very soon I'm going to really start getting into the weeds comparing the Bills to the AFC East and the other contenders within the conference. And so we're going to flesh this out a lot coming up very, very soon. But I do want to take the opportunity to address this question because I think it's really good. The Jets have suddenly become the darlings of the NFL now that they have acquired Aaron Rodgers to go with that really good defense and new coaching, uh, new offensive coordinator there, Nathaniel Hackett, and some players that Aaron Rodgers is quite familiar with. But the Bills are a battle-tested team. I think that's a big deal. I mean, the Jets won seven games last year. They didn't score a touchdown their last three games. Aaron Rodgers didn't have a, a great season last year. Aaron Rodgers is aging. He's going to be 40 years old this year. And I think the Jets are going to be a good football team. I think they'll challenge for 10 wins. But that's not a team. That's not a situation that they've gone through a lot of adversity as a football team. It's a very young football team in so many spots. And so I'm not ready to just crown the Jets at all. And I just, I've said this before, like what's changed with the Bills? They lost in the, in the playoffs to the Bengals 27-10. to 10. The roster's better now than it was last year. The same team that everybody in the world picked to win the Super Bowl last year, the Buffalo Bills, they're back, they're ready to go. The Super Bowl window isn't anywhere near closed. And that's something we've talked a lot about this offseason. And even when we did the way-too-early look at next offseason's problems for Brandon Bean, the window still ain't closed. And so I think people are a little bit rubbed the wrong way because their pick to win the Super Bowl didn't get past the divisional round and kind of got embarrassed in the playoffs. But the Buffalo Bills are still one of the elite teams in the NFL. 
and they're one of the, to me, one of the leading favorites amongst any team out there to go win the Super Bowl this year. So let's let all the other teams get the headlines this time around and the Bills go out there and do what they consistently do, and that's win football games and compete in the playoffs. Next one here comes from Rick. Rick says, you and other Bills content creators have talked a lot about optimism for Spencer Brown's year three potential, but I've heard virtually no optimism for Boogie Basham's year three potential. Both are day two picks with physical traits. Brown's RAS is a 10. Basham's RAS is a 9.38. While Brown has had more reps than Basham, both had positive flashes amongst inconsistent play. Why does one have more potential than the other? Is it because Brown had less positional experience in high school and college and offseason injury derailed his year two, leading to more of a projection of what he could be? Or is this more about what coaches have told us about starting Brown while Basham lost the opportunity to Shaq Lawson? It's a good question, Rick, and I think you got into some of it there with the question, but I want to point to some other things. Boogie Basham was 24 years old when he was drafted and was a highly experienced college football player, right? Tons and tons of experience in the ACC. There wasn't a second in my process of evaluating Boogie Basham at Wake Forest and then projecting him to the Buffalo Bills Bills, where I said, you know what? I think that's a raw football player that's going to take some time for us to realize who he is. It wasn't that case at all, where I would say the exact opposite about Spencer Brown, where, wow, this guy went to a very small school. The flashes are really good. Hasn't played a ton of football. I think it's going to take him some time for him to realize his ceiling in the NFL, right? So I think it's just really different situations for both players. Now, I, I recognize the commonality between the two and that they're both gifted athletes, right? They have size, they have athleticism. Both of them have that. But in terms of where they are in their football journey, they really came into the NFL at different spots. And so while you look at Boogie Basham and you feel like, all right, he he plays hard, but I don't really see him winning one-on-one matchups or making a consistent impact. And you think to yourself, well, I never really thought he had that much of a ceiling to grow into. In fact, I remember when the Bills drafted Greg Rousseau in the first round and Boogie Basham in the second round, it wasn't that uncommon for people to think, you know what? Basham may be the player that helps the team now, and and Rousseau is more the long-term play here. And it turned out to be the exact opposite. And so I don't want to dismiss the idea of Boogie Basham having a great year three, right, and having a breakout. We've seen so many different Bills players break out in year three, whether that's Josh Allen or Dawson Knox or Matt Milano or Trey White or Deion Dawkins, right? The list goes on and on there of year three players for the Bills that really break out. I mean, even A.J. Epinesa last year had six and a half sacks. I mean, he was much better last year than he was in his previous two seasons. The same thing can happen for Boogie Basham. But in terms of why I think there's more attention and belief in Spencer Brown taking that step, I think it really comes back to that starting point and Boogie being an older player when he was drafted that I thought you know, didn't have that much ceiling to grow into despite being physically gifted where the exact opposite is what I said about Spencer Brown. The next one here is from Allen. Allen says, the media, including yourself, that's me, uh, has deemed Patrick Mahomes to be the unquestioned best quarterback in the league. PFF, who have traditionally been bearish on Josh, had their end-of-season grades as essentially a three-way tie between Mahomes, Burrow, and Allen. In my mind, these three are 1A, B, and C, but 
Of the three, Mahomes has the best situation of all, including O-line and one of the best play callers ever. Which individual skills, regardless of stats, make Mahomes head and shoulders above everyone else? And how different would the outlook of the Bills and Chiefs be if their quarterback situations were switched? Sorry if I misrepresented your position a bit going off memory, but thanks for answering. No, I think you've got my position pretty well stated. I think that Patrick Mahomes is the best quarterback in the league. And then I think you can debate Josh Allen and Joe Burrow. But those are your clear top three with Mahomes to me is the clear top number one. And so the reasons why I would say that Pat Mahomes is the clear number one outside of stats or that he's further accomplished than any any of those other two quarterbacks that we just mentioned, it's just that I think his instincts are better. I think he has exceptional instincts. He's the most instinctive playmaker at the quarterback position in the league ever, right? Like I've never seen a more instinctive player. And I can appreciate through watching Patrick Mahomes at Texas Tech and then his glow up in the NFL, how much he's evolved his game. And through that evolution, he's still been highly productive and, you know, just wins, right? And and I didn't say that Patrick Mahomes was the best quarterback in the NFL, like leaps and bounds until last year, because last year he went out and had a great season and he did it without Tyree Kill. They literally took away that type of player, right? How important that type of guy is, the volume, the how much he matters for spacing and the type of offense that you can play and the vertical component. They took that guy out of there and said, here's Juju Smith-Schuster and Miko Hardman and Sky Moore and Justin Watson, and you still get Travis Kelsey, but um, yeah, go go do it. And he went out and did it. I think about it like this, and I this is so weird because I feel like I'm like down talking Josh Allen. I, I and I hate that because I think Josh Allen is special. I love him. I think he's one of the you know two or three best players in the entire NFL, right? Don't like don't get me wrong here. Don't get me wrong here. But if you took away Stefan Diggs from the Bills, what does that look like? I'd have a lot of concerns about that. And maybe you could point to Pat Mahomes, he's got Andy Reid and he's got a better offensive line and he's got Kelsey. But they took away Hill, and the guy went out there and said, I don't care, and made it happen and won the Super Bowl and was the MVP, and he deserved all of it. If Josh Allen got digs taken away from him, like what does that look like? I still think the Bills would be a really good team, but I don't know if like if there would be no drop-off, like there was literally no drop-off from Mahomes. And I'm not sitting here telling you like Diggs makes Allen. Like I'm not saying that. But I think Pat is just ahead of the game when it comes to instincts, right? And obviously, the track record of the resume speaks for itself. It kills me to say this. I wish that Patrick Mahomes was alive at a different point in time than right now when the Bills have Josh Allen. But damn it, that's the world that we live in right now. Hope that answer makes sense. Don't If that gets twisted and people think I'm not like in love with Josh Allen, they are completely wrong. They're completely wrong. I, I think the world of Josh Allen. But Pat Mahomes is cut ahead. He just is. I don't want that to be true, but it is. All right, let's talk about FanDuel here before we keep going here with a lot of bunch or a bunch of great questions uh, still left to get to. Make a fast break to FanDuel during the NBA playoffs because right now new customers can get a no-sweat first bet up to $1,000. That's $1,000 back in bonus bets if your first bet doesn't win. And there's so much that you can get in on right now. It's not just the NBA playoffs. The NHL playoffs are happening. MLB is in full swing. NFL futures bets are available for you to check out. 
There's simply no better place to get in on all the playoff action and the sports action than America's number one sports book. So visit FanDuel.com slash LockedOn and get a no-sweat first bet up to $1,000. That's FanDuel.com slash LockedOn. FanDuel, official sports betting partner of the NBA. The next one today comes from Pete. Pete says, I have some questions around yards after catch with this offense. I know you've touched on this topic before, but I don't understand why it's not more of a priority. Seems like it could have massive returns for the offense. Screens, why can't we execute these, especially last year with such an athletic offensive line? Uh, wide receiver yards after catches, it's so low because Josh holds onto the ball, or do the wide receivers just not have that skill set? It's a good question here, Pete, and, and I've talked a lot about yards after catch and how I wish it was more of a thing for the Bills on offense. Uh, but I think it's a, a number of contributing factors. I don't know that it's any one thing. Um, so I'm going to give you these contributing factors in no particular order. But one, I do think it's ball placement. Uh, I think Josh Allen can be more accurate with some of his shorter passes and those routes that lend themselves to yards after catch, which are qu- typically your short intermediate throws in breaking patterns, you know, putting that ball in a position where the, where the weapon can stay up, right. That can catch it and, and run with the football. I still think Josh Allen can be more precise with his ball placement. I think the style of offense that the bills run, uh, makes it hard for yards after catch to be a, a big thing, right? We're talking about a vertical um, offense. You're talking about a lot of comeback routes, a lot of outbreaking patterns, um, just not routes that really set up well for yards after catch. It's it's stylistically, it's not a big part of the offense like it is for other teams. I think not throwing the ball to running backs very often is another big reason why yards after catch is low. You know, that's where a lot of your yak comes from is dumping the ball down to running backs them creating with the ball in their hands. And I don't think the Bills have been effective at getting their backs going in the passing game with a high level of consistency. And then I think it's also yards after catch talent. I don't think the Bills have the most talented players in terms of dynamic and lethal and hold your breath because they have the ball in their hands, right? And that that's those types of skill sets haven't been there um for the Bills, right? Right? Like there's not this there's not this group of yards after catch weapons that the Bills would prioritize getting the ball to. As for the screen game, um, you know, I, I get a lot of questions about the screen game. The Bills aren't a great screen team. They haven't been for a long time. They haven't been since what? Chan Gailey was the coach. Screens are hard. They're uh, a play that requires a lot of practice, a lot of nuance to it. Um, you really want to get a lot of man coverage. The Bills get a lot of zone coverage, um, a lot of eyes in the backfield. It's just, they're just, the Bills don't get good looks for screens. They don't get a ton of, um, you know, like blitzes. So I think the recipe for getting screens is just not there. And for you to be a good screen team, it has to be a big priority for what you do. And it's just not stylistically the way that the Bills play offense. And so um, that's, uh, you know, it's Josh Allen's not the type of quarterback that's going to get the types of looks that are effective to run screens against. Um, So that's what I would say about screens. And of course, yards after catch. Mike says, I am already sick of hearing people say Dalton Kincaid can't block as a knock against him. If we are deploying him as a large slot in most cases, this should be close to irrelevant anyways. However, to dig further into this, my question is, can you compare Kincaid's blocking against top blocking traditional slot wide receivers in the NFL? My thinking is if he can be a great pass catcher while also being one of the top blockers at his position, then aren't the Bills in pretty good shape here? 
I understand the question here, Mike, but if you look at Dalton Kincaid through the lens of a tight end and, and playing in traditional inline alignments, which we can all acknowledge we don't expect that to be a uh, something he does a ton, then yeah, Dalton Kincaid's not a great blocker. He gets pushed back into gaps. I mean, I appreciate that he's willing, but he's not a guy that's really going to create play side movement. You know, can he do some backside cutoff? Sure. But if he's not a guy you want as a play side inline player blocking defensive ends, that's not going to go well for him. If you look at him through the lens of being a slot receiver, I think he'll probably wind up being one of the best slot receiving blockers in the league. And this is, this is an ancillary component of what he's going to offer anyways. And so I think it's a fair criticism if you're going to ask him to be a traditional tight end, but clearly that's not going to be the case. And as a slot receiver, I think he's going to be a very good blocker in that, you know, and through that lens. Um, but yeah, I think it, you know, people scout in a vacuum, right? I do, or I did before this year, you scout in a vacuum and you, take this player and you can't assume the role that a team's going to have for them. And you have to be mindful of that being on the scouting report that, Hey, look, if you ask this guy to block in line, might not go well. Hasn't gone well for him at Utah. Gets pushed back into gaps. He's willing, he competes. And so I, I understand the criticism, but also, yeah, he'll probably be a really good slot receiver as a blocker. Next one here comes from James. This is an interesting one. It's not really a question. I'm just going to kind of put this out there and see what type of interest we can drum up. Uh, James says, herd mentality thing or something else, but I love to read, and I think you talking about the books you are reading would be really interesting, and I would love a Locked On Bills book club. And this got me thinking that would be really fun. A Locked On Bills book club would be cool. Uh, I read a lot of books, um, a lot of football books, but a lot of other types of books as well. I don't really read uh, much nonfiction Um is that a story? I don't, I don't, I can, I always get it crossed up. I read, I don't read a lot of novels or, or books that are, that have a plot. Um, so if there's interest out there to do like a lockdown bills book club, um, let me hear it. Uh, because I, I, I'd, I'd like to do it. I don't think I'd be interested in leading that. I'd like to be part of it. Right. I, I don't, I don't know that I would be the great, a great person to be out in front of it and coordinate it all. But if you're interested in it, let me know. Cause if there's enough interest, we can do this. Um, so leave a comment if you're watching on YouTube or shoot me a tweet on uh, Twitter at the Joe Marino. Uh, but also, if you're interested in having a leadership role with that, it would be cool, too. So just putting some feelers out there because this could be fun. Um, and we could learn together. We could read together and be accountable as well. So I, I like all that. Um, but I want to see if there's interest and, of course, interest in actually being part of coordinating it. Next one here comes from Rob. Rob says teams have signature wins, but the Bills seem to have signature losses. Heartbreakers that spark a run. 2020, Cardinals, Hal Murray. 2021, Buccaneers, loss in overtime. 2022, Vikings, goal line fumble. Continuing their record following these losses, the Bills went 17-0. Take a second and let that sink in. That's crazy. I was so happy when I read this from Rob because that is incredible. So after the Hal Murray, after the Buccaneers' overtime loss, and after the Vikings' goal line fumble, the Bills went a combined 17-0. and Wow. Rob continues, if history repeats itself, which NFC team would you predict to be the signature loss this season? None of us want to see it, but we can at least have the conversation now that 
the schedule is in hand. All right, this is such a cool question. So I've looked at the schedule. This is what I think it would be if I had to, like, guess here. I go to week 12 at Philadelphia. You can see the Bills having a disappointing loss, whether it's, like, some kind of crazy heartbreaking loss or, look, they just kind of get beat by, you know, 10 points or something like that. And there's a lot of doom and gloom. Can the Bills hang with the best teams in the NFL? Are they doomed? Are they destined for another big playoff disappointment? And then they go into the bye week. They come out. They beat Kansas City in Kansas City. Then they have Dallas, the Chargers, Patriots, and Dolphins. Could they run the table? Could a loss in week 12 against Philly spark a five-game win streak against the Chiefs, Cowboys, Chargers, Patriots, and Dolphins to run the table and make the Bills record following signature losses would that be 22 and 0 that's where my mind went that's what made the most sense to me but fun fun question fun talking point there from rob all right we got more to get to here after a quick break welcome back before we get into our last few herd mentality items i want to remind you about the locked on bills subtext community let me invite you to join this something new that we're offering there's a link in the show notes to join if you're interested in that. Here's what you get. You get one-on-one text conversations with me. That's been so cool, texting back and forth with so many different listeners, and um, that's been awesome. Uh, you get priority when it comes to herd mentality, so I think three or four of the questions today came from subtext subscribers. Uh, we'll have some exclusive content. We'll give you some regular uh, mass text messages where I'll send you some Bill's thoughts. Uh, I'll give you my first reaction to all major Bill's news. We'll do some giveaways. We did one Last week, I sent off a couple copies of my book, Go Bills, and um, it's going to be really cool just to be able to engage with you guys and and share out thoughts and have one-on-one correspondence. So if you're interested, there is a link in the show notes for today uh, that you can click on and join. And then real quick here, this subtext community has no impact on the regular delivery of the podcast. Somebody left a review last week saying, you know, hate the new delivery of the podcast and, you know, behind a paywall. Like, no, that's not what this is at all. It changes nothing with the delivery of the podcast and what we've always done here. It's just an extra layer of engagement for those who might want it. All right, let's keep it going here. Next one here comes from Steven. Steven says, can you talk about the comparisons between Kincaid and Mike Gesicki and whether or not they are valid? I'll tell you what, I don't like this comparison at all. Um, I, okay, let, let's unpack this. Mike Gusecki is a very good contested catch tight end. He's got good ball skills and hands. He's got some athleticism in terms of linear athleticism, and that's what he profiles as. He, cause he, he does not come close to Dalton Kincaid in terms of route running, change of direction skills, yards after catch skills. I mean, they're similar in that they're really good in terms of ball skills and hands in contested situations, but Dalton Kincaid just offers way more as a route runner and as a receiver. As blockers, neither one profiles well in line, but Mike Gusecki is one of the worst blocking tight ends slash receivers I've ever seen. Kincaid is at least willing. So... If you want to say that they're F tight ends that have ball skills and good hands, that's where the similarities end. Because the route running, 
the yards after catch, the change of direction, the blocking results are much better when it comes to Dalton Kincaid. So I would refute that stylistic comparison in every imaginable way. Ryan says, I understand OTAs are voluntary. And I heard you mention that you wished Stefan Diggs was in attendance, don't we all? But his absence this year feels different than last. Seeing the infamous clip of his interaction with Josh on the sideline during the playoff loss, reports of him trying to leave the locker room early afterward, his comments to national radio hosts during Super Bowl week, and of course, the never-ending cryptic tweets. In your opinion, does he possess the qualities of being a captain? Do you think he'll have the C on his jersey for a third straight year? Personally, I'm starting to question his leadership. It's a good question. It's a fair question, Ryan. And I talked last week about Diggs not being there. And, you know, I think ultimately there is a case of it not being a huge deal, right? I mean, Tyreek Hill hasn't been at the Dolphins OTAs. Are we talking about that? But also there's other layers to this, right? And I I certainly understand that. I think Von Miller's response when asked about Steph Diggs was pretty telling where he said, Stefan Diggs is a, is a superstar on and off the field. And I trust that when he needs to be here, he's going to be ready to go, you know, and went on for a, a while on that and, and defended Steph. And ultimately the captains are voted on by teammates. So if Steph Diggs gets a C on his Jersey, let's keep in mind, but th- that that's because his teammates voted him a team captain. And I think that carries a lot of weight. Now does Steph Diggs go about his business a lot differently than I would. Yeah, Absolutely. You couldn't keep me, you'd have to, you'd have, you couldn't keep me away from the team if I were a member of a football team, whether I was Josh Allen, Stefan Diggs, or if I was whatever, insert undrafted free agent from three years ago trying to make the team, Alec Anderson or something like that. You'd have to try to keep me away. I'd want to be there every second. And we know how important time together is and bonding and like, it's all important for you to grow as a football team. And to me, if you're a leader, you should be there. And so I don't want to overstate it. Like I'm certainly mindful of that, but I, I certainly would have a different approach, but I've also never been a star wide receiver in the NFL that has his resume and all the things that he's been through. Like I, I also can't really put myself in that position, but I can tell you we would go about it differently for sure. Last one here today is an interesting one from Gerald. Gerald says, the new stadium will have natural grass as the surface. I attended most of the games at World Memorial as a a youth, and it also had a grass surface. By Thanksgiving, it was a total mess, just mud in the middle of the field. By halftime, you couldn't see the yard lines, and the players were covered in mud head to foot. I thought it was such a huge improvement when the new stadium, Rich Stadium, had artificial turf. I understand the players like grass better and studies show less injuries. Is there some new technology innovations methods to make grass fields hold up better in the Northeast when the cold and wet weather of Western New York arrives? I'm going to, I'll be honest with you. I don't, I don't have a specific answer here, but I think this is worth bringing up. I think it's a good talking point. Surely, right? I mean, World Memorial Stadium, we're talking about the 60s and 70s. Surely there's been some significant technology 
that exists that's going to allow the Bills to maintain that turf at a high level. So much so that they would make the switch from an artificial surface to a grass surface, not just because of injuries, but because they believe they can maintain it. You know, there's other outdoor teams in the Northeast that have grass, right? You think about Green Bay, they've they've had always had grass. I know Pittsburgh has had grass before, they still do. They switched to grass, actually. Um I I trust that this was fully considered when making that choice. I mean, I'm sure heated fields, drainage systems, all of that's got to be really advanced stuff. And I'm sure that they're prepared to, to do it. But yeah, I, I know what you mean. Like it, we talk about the Northeast, it's cold and wet. Like it's one of the worst surfaces in the league is Miami. It's in South Florida. And you know, when they have back-to-back games where the Miami hurricanes play there on a Saturday and the dolphins play on a Sunday, I mean, that's pretty rough. And they change out that sod all the time. So I don't have a specific answer. I would be pretty confident that since the 60s and 70s, there's been major technological advancements when it comes to methods and technology needed to maintain the surface and that all of that was taken into consideration when they made that choice to switch from artificial to grass. And so I'm going to trust that. But obviously, you know, we'll see how it all plays out. And if it's not safe for the players, then they'll have to pivot and come up with a different plan. All right, folks, that's going to do it for us here today on the podcast. It's going to be a busy week this week as usual. I mean, we got OTAs this week, so we'll get a big update uh, coming out of Tuesday and plenty of Buffalo Bills conversation coming for you all week long. So don't miss anything. Make sure that you're subscribed. would love it if you took a second to rate, review, and share the podcast. Have a great rest of your day. Go Bills, and I look forward to catching up with you again tomorrow.